second half of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. So I'd ask you to open your Bibles there, and if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1790. Keep it open there, we'll be referring to it from time to time. On August 24th, 79 A.D., some of you might know that, some might not, it's been a long time, (laughs) Mount Vesuvius wiped out the Roman city of Pompeii. The explosion was so sudden that the residents of Pompeii were buried while doing their daily routines. Men and women were at the market, the rich in their luxurious baths, Mothers with babies and slaves doing their work. Literally, they were frozen in time. Almost 1,800 years later, in 1964, an archaeologist by the name of Giuseppe Fiorelli kept unearthing strange voids in the earth during his excavation efforts at Pompeii. One day, he ordered that one of the voids be filled with plaster. And after it was hardened, they took away the dirt around it. What emerged actually shocked the world. These voids in the ash were none other than decomposed human bodies frozen at the moment of death. Through Fiorelli's ingenious technique, nearly 1,200 of these bodies were reconstituted from the grave. Paul has just informed the Corinthian church in the first half of this letter that their bodies, these bodies, will be reconstituted from the grave. That their current body, though dead, would be reunited with their soul when Christ comes back. So the natural question they ask is, what are these bodies going to be like? That's the question on all of our minds, isn't it? If this is true, what is our new body going to be like? And that's exactly what they ask him in verse 35. Someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you just do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined And to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. And fish, another. We're going to stop there just for a moment because he's answering the question what we can expect, what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And Paul begins by telling them that their resurrection bodies are not going to be altogether unfamiliar. In other words, there is going to be a continuity between your body now and your body to come. 
And he uses an analogy that an agrarian society would absolutely get, the, the, the analogy of a seed growing into a plant. First, the bodily resurrection begins with death. An agrarian society would understand that a seed, when you plant it in the ground, actually dies. So your resurrection body starts with death. It must die in order to produce life. In other words, death is a natural part of the transformation. A wheat seed must die for wheat to come forth. But death is not the end. He secondly says your resurrection body will be different than your body now. He writes, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. You do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. What comes out of the ground looks different. When you plant a wheat seed, what comes out of the ground looks wholly different than the seed that you planted. But it still has wheat DNA. It is still wheat. There is this continuity that Paul is bringing out between the bodies you have now and the bodies yet to come. But the question still remains, what will those bodies look like? They're asking Paul, could you please just draw us a picture? Draw me a picture of what these bodies look like. Well, here again, we bump up into the area of faith, don't we? Look at verse 38. Paul says there, but God gives it a body as he has determined. To each seed, kind of seed, he gives its own body. God will determine your body. This is under God's control. Deuteronomy 29.29, which I have encouraged our congregation to memorize and know uh, since I got here. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed are for you forever. What that, what that verse is saying and what the Bible we bump up to, into in the Bible again and again is God gives us only what we need. He doesn't tell us everything. And that's what Paul is saying here about the resurrection bodies. He's not going to tell you everything. He's not going to draw us a picture. Here it is. He's not going to answer all the questions. And what does that cause us to do? Causes us one of two things. You can either resent him for it, or you can trust him. And I think that's where we have to lie here. You have to trust God where your future body is concerned. God is telling us that we will be raised bodily from the dead, that our souls will be reunited with our bodies, that our bodies, like a seed of a plant, will be similar. There's continuity, but... There's also discontinuity. And that's what he goes into in the rest of the chapter. Look at, with me at verse 40 and following. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another. And the stars differ from star in splendor so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man, from heaven. As was the earthly man, so were those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must be clothed with must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. I want to pause there, because here Paul is describing the discontinuity between our bodies now and our bodies to be. In his book The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis imagines those new bodies and what they might look like. And he describes them this way. He says in the book, I saw people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And at first, I did not know that they were people at all. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. Some uh, sweet smell went up as they crushed the grass and scattered the dew. Some were naked, some were robed. But the naked ones did not seem less adorned. And the robes did not disguise, in those who wore them, the massive grandeur of muscle and radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, but no one in the company struck me as being of any particular age. I think C.S. Lewis is struggling with what we struggle with is what, what are these bodies going to look like? And he, I think he captures the, the kind of continuity and discontinuity that Paul is describing here. Because our resurrected bodies will be different. In verse 40, Paul writes, The splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. There is going to be this discontinuity, a dissimilarness, like the sun and the moon. Amazing, both amazing, but different. There's a definite distinction drawn between our earthly and our heavenly bodies. As uh, Hank Hanegraaff, I don't know if any of you listen to him, the Bible answer man, he has little ways of describing things. And he describes the difference between our earthly and heavenly bodies this way. Organizationally different, but recognizable. Organizationally different, but recognizable. He, he goes on to talk about the caterpillar and the butterfly as an analogy. Caterpillar goes in to the, to the cocoon and comes out, and it's different, 
But there is this continuity. It's made from the same kind of stuff. Again, the analogies always break down spiritually, but you get the idea. Same constituent parts, but organized a little differently. And in verses 42 through 44, Paul gives us some specifics on how we are going to be organizationally different. He first goes on to say we go from being perishable to imperishable in verse 42. Our current bodies are subject to the curse of death, to the curse of entropy. We all feel it, some more than others. I remember when I used to go and visit Lou Libby at Sonogy, and she was uh, 101 at the time. And we used to talk, it was 10, 14 years ago, we used to talk, and at some point she would always say, you know, I have all my marbles, but the bag is wearing out. (laughs) And that's true for all of us. The bag is wearing out. We all intrinsically understand that. The aches, the pains, the slow breakdowns, all the way to the eventual shutdown. We're all going there. The satirical website The Onion ran a humorous article entitled World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100% goes on to say World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday that the group's findings, despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities nationwide. Cure has not been found. Goes on to say the director, Gernst Blatt, of the World Health Organization, is quoted by saying, I really was hoping that with those new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, aerobic TV shows, that we might at least put a dent in that statistic this year. Unfortunately, it would appear that death remains constant and total. That's the truth, guys. Death remains constant and total. But not so with our resurrected bodies. That's the amazing thing. They will last forever. This is something we have to hear over and over again to begin to start to believe it. Our resurrected, physical, glorified bodies will last forever. This is something hard for us to grasp because our only experience is entropy, isn't it? G.E. Ladd in his book, I Believe in the Resurrection, wrote, Who can imagine a body without weakness, or infection, or tiredness, or sickness, or death? This is a body utterly unknown on earth. It is an order of existence which the laws of nature no longer obtain. In fact, when one puts his mind to it, it is quite unimaginable, he writes. And that's true. But God is telling us right here, we're sown perishable, but we're raised 
imperishable. We will never die. Secondly, he says we go from dishonor to glory. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it this way. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Paul is using the constraining language to express this glorious resurrection of our bodies. Now, everyone sitting in this room has probably lost a loved one. Everyone sitting here. And you've been to the grave and you've seen the hole. And you've seen the, the coffin suspended over it. I remember for myself with my brother-in-law, Walt, I remember studying that. In, a fin- in the finality of it all. And then his body lowered into that hole. Each one of us knows what that feels like. There's a finality there, isn't there? Actually, you can go beyond that and say there, there can be a hopelessness there. There can be a sadness. As a matter of fact, it can be, it can be one of the hopeless moments in your whole life if you watch that. Unless what we read here in God's word is true, then it's not hopeless, is it? The only absolute and unshakable hope that can be found in any cemetery, at any burial, is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. And there are hints of this in many cemeteries. I don't know if you know this, but in many planned cemeteries, the tombstones face east. You know why they do that? In Matthew 24, 27, Jesus describes his coming, for as in lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so the coming of the Son of Man. You know why tombstones face east? So that when the bodies are raised, they're looking right at their coming Lord. In years gone by, some have interpreted that verse quite literally, and I think it's beautiful, whether it's literal or not. So that when the trumpet was sound and the dead are raised, as Paul writes here, they will face their coming Savior. It's a beautiful picture. And one that gives hope in those very graveyards, doesn't it? As an unknown writer once put it, the best news the world ever had comes from graveyards. Philippians 3.21 says that we read earlier, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Because my brother-in-law trusted in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation, he will rise again. Third, we go from weakness to power. From weakness to power, he says. Paul details this weakness out in Romans 7, quite, quite literally. 
He says, for I desire to, to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What I want to do is not the good I do. No, the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing. And he concludes that whole section by saying, what a wretched man I am. He is, he is giving words to the struggle with sin that we all have, isn't he? he? He is describing quite perfectly the struggle that we have in this weak body that we have. That's our condition. That's our current state. And if you think you can control sin, people, if you think you can white-knuckle it, if you think that you can, you can just he- put hedge around hedge, and make it so that you don't sin, you're fooling yourself. You can't stop. It's prideful illusion to think that you can stop sinning. You know, the only thing that can help in this area, the only thing, is the pure and unadulterated grace and power of God Almighty. That's the only way we can say no to sin. The great, uh, the great theologian and church father, Augustine, put it this way in explaining our position in regard to sin. He said, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them able to sin, passe pacare in Latin. Adam was given the freedom to choose obedience or not. And we all know... In Genesis 3, how that turned out. He acted on that freedom and he sinned. Then Augustine says, since the fall, we are all in Adam and we are all not able not to sin. Non passe, non pecare. Not able not to sin. This is the position we're all born into. This is the position that Paul is describing here. We're sown in weakness. We are not able not to sin. We sin all the time. But by grace, God's grace alone, those who have trusted Jesus have the spirit of the living God inside them. And another change happens. Another transformation happens, Augustine says. Now you're able not to sin. Passe non-pecare. Titus 2.12 puts it this way, for by the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As believers, people were able, by God's power and God's grace, to actually say no to sin. If you think you're doing it on your own, again, that's not how the scripture puts it. It's by God's power in you, you're able to resist sin. But even with the Spirit, it's a struggle, isn't it? Even with the Spirit, it's a struggle. In one of my discipleship groups, we're reading John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. In that book, goes over again and again this struggle that we have, even as regenerate believers, even as spirit-filled believers, this struggle that we go through. 
in trying to mortify and trying to kill sin, trying to have victory over sin. It's a struggle. But what Paul is saying here is that although we might be sown in weakness, we are raised in power. Our resurrection bodies are now unable to sin. This is, this is unbelievable. We're not going to be able to sin. Finally and forever. Gosh. I don't know. When I was preparing this, I was just, I was just meditating on that and thinking, what, what could that look like? What could that look like that I will not be able to sin? And I jotted a couple things down. My motives for doing everything would be perfectly pure. All my relationships, all my relationships will be open and honest and transparent. My sacrifice that I do for others now that is such a labor sometimes will be pleasurable and I'll be looking for them and I'll be excited to do them. I will never be concerned about my reputation again. Can you believe that? That consumes us, by the way, people. I'll never be selfishly ambitious. I won't be doing this for Blake. I'll never seek power and position and prestige over anybody. That's not what I'll be about anymore. I'll always be seeking other people's good. Think about that one. That's going to be my MO. I'll always be looking for other people's good. Work. Work will be a pleasure and joyous and look forward to. And the worship of the Lord God Almighty that we're doing right now is just a glimpse. It's a glimpse of what it's going to be like. Totally fulfilling. You'll be totally fulfilled to be here. You'll be, it'll be incredibly pleasurable. You'll find meaning and purpose completely in worshiping your Lord. And the worship will be faithless because we'll be seeing Christ face to face. All this will happen when we go from our earthly bodies to our spiritual bodies. And that's what he says in verse 44. And that's what Paul is trying to explain in the extended comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. In verses 45 through 50. First Adam is living, the second Adam Christ is life-giving. First Adam is natural, the second Adam Christ is spiritual. First Adam was of the dust. The second Adam Christ is from heaven. And he concludes by saying in verse 49, "And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, first Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. It's probably the greatest clue 
to what our resurrected bodies will be like. Read the Gospels and read about the resurrected Christ. Similar, yet different. Continuity, yet discontinuity. So that Mary Magdalene and the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't even recognize him at first. But others did. Similar yet different in that he had a human body. Thomas probed the holes in his hands and his side. He had human capacities. He ate fish. He was physical, yet he could pass through walls. He could get into locked rooms. He could disappear at a moment. Let's notice. Similar yet different. Continuity and discontinuity. This will all happen when Christ returns. And look at the return that Paul speaks of starting in verse 54. It says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here we talk about the resurrection Opus finale. This is what redemption history has been building to people. This is the culmination of God's plans before time. The undoing of the curse that hangs over us. Yes, sin's power is severed. Yes, death is defeated. But why does Paul focus on the defeat of death here? Why is that his main concern? Well... It's the original curse, isn't it? The original consequence of Adam's disobedience is not sin's power over us, although that will be eradicated too. It's not Satan's defeat, although he will be thrown into the lake of fire and gone. It's the defeat of death that Paul is focusing on here. Death is the original curse. In Genesis 2, God puts Adam and Eve there and says, you can... You have total freedom except for that one tree, that one tree. Don't partake of that one tree because when you do, you will surely die, he says. Now, he wasn't talking about physical death there, although that's something that happens as a symptom of it. He's talking about spiritual death. When you partake of that, you will spiritually die. What is spiritual death? It's a broken relationship with God. It's separation from God. It's the relational chasm that we have between God and mankind. And we sense that chasm from time to time. We will feel intensely lonely or depressed or isolated or remote. 
But the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, I think, puts a good word to that separation. If you remember in that parable, the rich man has gone to to hell and Lazarus is in heaven. And at one point, the rich man says, please tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put a drop on my mouth because I am in agony. You know what that agony is? It's total and absolute separation from God. That's the word that the Bible uses. That's spiritual death. That's the real enemy. And that's why Paul gets so excited here. He almost sings this last verse, doesn't he? Because our Abba Father finally brings us back into perfect communion with him, he sings out and says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Why? He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. How is this chasm breached? How is this agony averted? How is death defeated? Through Christ and Christ alone. Through what he went through, Jesus gives us victory. And by taking our defeat, that's the beauty of the gospel right there. Jesus the imperishable became perishable so that the imperishable us might become imperishable. Jesus took on dust so that the ones made out of dust, us, might take on heaven. Jesus, the glorious one, experienced dishonor so that those who are sown in dishonor, us, might experience glory. Jesus, the powerful one, became weak so that the weak might become powerful. Jesus, the man of heaven, made himself a son of man, so that the sons of Adam might become men of heaven. Jesus, the lawgiver, was born under the law, so that those crushed by the law, us, might have victory over it. Jesus, who deserved death, Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death, so that those stung by the poison of death, us, might live. That is the gospel. That is what Paul is singing about here. And as we go into our last hymn, I want you to be singing about that too. Please stand with me as we sing about this great victory that he has given us.